Our Father in heaven, we come before you again as we are gathered together. And we ask that you would continue to quiet our minds and our hearts, especially now as we come before your word, seeking to look into it, seeing what you have to say to us, Lord. May you, figuratively speaking, shut our mouths and help us to listen, to listen to what you have to say. Lord, as we go through this passage, as we look at these verses, as we look again at Jonah and what's going on here, what you are doing, pray that we would see that it's very relevant for us today. It matters in our lives. May you show us the applications and the, the implications that it has for us. May you use your word to continually transform our lives, making us more and more into the image of our Lord Jesus Christ. Exposing our sin, convicting us of our sin, and helping us to grow in sanctification. Lord, we again thank you for who you are. We thank you for your character. We thank you for the Lord Jesus. We thank you for your word. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So last week in our time together, we were in chapter 3. We covered the whole chapter. And within that chapter, we saw the word of the Lord come to Jonah a second time. He received the word of the Lord. He obeyed it this go around, you know, rather than in chapter 1, hearing it and then running from the presence of the Lord. It comes to him this time, the second time. He hears it, he obeys it, he goes to Nineveh, or we, we saw him go to Nineveh, he preached the message that God had given to him, and what happened? They believed. The Ninevites believed. Against all expectation, against all odds, they heard Jonah's short sermon, and they believed. His ministry, His mission that God had given him was a success. Probably one of the greatest success that you know, ministry could have. You know, a great success. So we should all be happy, right? We should all just be filled with joy, rejoicing. I mean, God is happy about what has just happened, isn't He? Doesn't God rejoice over and delight in sinners who repent of their evil ways? Yes, God does rejoice. Listen to this parable that Jesus tells in Luke chapter 15. Jesus in this parable, He says, What woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. That's how happy God is whenever one sinner repents. He and all of heaven throw a party to celebrate. So how much more when it's an exceedingly great city, like we've been seeing Nineveh was. An exceedingly great city. 
They just heard the message of Jonah. They repented. I imagine that God was indeed very happy and that all of heaven was, again, indeed, throwing a party, rejoicing over what had just happened. But there's somebody that's not happy. Someone is not happy. Jonah is not happy. In fact, to say that Jonah is not happy is an understatement. Because this man is extremely angry and displeased with God and what he has done. Extremely. But why? Well, Jonah is going to tell us in his own words. So if you would look with me down at verse 10 of chapter 3. We're going to begin there and we'll read down to verse 4. When God saw what they did, speaking of the Ninevites, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that He had said He would do to them. And He did not do it. Then we come to chapter 4. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord... Is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me. For it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah, do you do well to be angry? So within this passage, we see primarily three things going on. We see Jonah's anger in verse 1. We see Jonah's prayer in verses 2 and 3. And then finally in verse 4, we see God's question that he confronts Jonah with. So we're going to focus in on each of these things that is going on in these four verses. So Jonah's anger in verse 1. We see there the author comment on Jonah's anger and he describes it this way. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly and he was angry. The word there, exceedingly, in verse 1, it's a combination of two words. Great and evil. And we've seen this word a few times throughout the book, and most of the time it's a combination of two words. So like whenever it speaks about the the city there in chapter 3 where it says it was an exceedingly great city. Well, the combination there is great city and it's reference to God. So it was an exceedingly great city to God. And so here the combination is great and evil. So in other words, it would read like this. What God has done is exceedingly or greatly evil to Jonah. Exceedingly evil to Jonah. What God has done is exceedingly evil to Jonah. And that word evil is the same word that was just used for the evil of the Ninevites that God described in chapter 1 and also in chapter 3. Talking about how their evil had risen before Him 
And also on the boat, when Jonah's, when Jonah's on the boat with the sailors and the sailors get together, they're going to cast lots to find out why this evil has come upon us. It's the same word. So like those things are evil, Jonah considers what God has done that type of evil. Exceedingly evil. What God has done, showing mercy on the Ninevites, Jonah looks at it, he sees it, he is enraged, he is filled with anger, and he thinks that it is exceedingly evil. Now, again, what would make Jonah feel like this? I mean, what would make this man look at what God has done and say to himself, that is evil to me? He's not just mad about it. He thinks it's evil. Like it's bad. God, what you did is bad. You did something that's evil. I mean, this is a great accusation that Jonah is making against God here. God, what you did, yeah, I'm not happy about it, but that's evil. This is indeed a great accusation. So what would make Jonah feel like this? That he would view God's work as evil and be angry because of it. Well, he tells us in his prayer in verses 2 and 3. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. So now as we come to Jonah's prayer, we, we begin to see what's been going on since first place, whenever he ran in the beginning. That is why I made, ha- made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Now we've been referring to this part of the book for a few weeks, but now we finally hear Jonah tell us what the problem has been all along in his own words as he prays to God here in chapter 4. Jonah has a problem with God's gracious character. Now some of you may notice that in his prayer, he makes reference to God's revealing of His glory to Moses in Exodus chapter 34. You remember that? Whenever Moses cries out to God saying, show me your glory, and then God does. That's what he's talking about here. That's what he's making reference to. This is what he's mad about. I knew that you were this way. And he's talking about that precious moment when God revealed His very character, His very glory to Moses back in Exodus chapter 34. And this is what the Lord said to Moses there in Exodus chapter 34. This is verses 6 and 7. The Lord responds to Moses. Remember, He's showing him His glory. This is what God's glory looks like. This is the very heart of His character. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So Jonah takes this precious revelation of God 
and he throws it in God's face. This is one of the most precious passages in all of the Bible. And Jonah takes it and he throws it back in God's face. I knew this is who you were. I knew this is what you would do. I knew that you would have mercy on these people. I knew that you were a God of steadfast love, of mercy, of grace, slow to anger, bounding in steadfast love. I knew that's who you were. And I knew that's what you would do if you sent me here. If I actually came and I preached to these people, I knew there was a chance that you would show your goodness to them. Jonah knows that God loves to forgive. He knows that He loves to see people repent. Yes, God is just, as He says in that revelation in Exodus 34. He will not leave the guilty unpunished. But what God mentions first in that revelation to Moses is His goodness, His mercy, His grace, and His steadfast love. Because this is at the very heart of who God is and what it looks like to see His glory. That's at the very heart of who God is. Yes, God is just. That's a part of God as well. Just as much so as His goodness. But the reason why God's justice exists is because His goodness has been attacked. It's the whole reason why God's justice exists. People attack His goodness, His character, who He is, and He hates it. And He responds in wrath and justice. But His very heart is steadfast love and mercy and grace. Slow to anger. And Jonah knows this. But it's not that Jonah is mad at the fact that this is who God is. A merciful and gracious God full of steadfast love and faithfulness. No, Jonah loves this about God. And we know that he loves this about God because we saw him love it in chapter 2. And his prayer, you know, the first prayer that he prayed in this book. Whenever he cried out, remember he was in need, he was sinking to the bottom of the sea, he was about to die, and he cries out to the Lord, and the Lord saves him through the fish. And then at the end of chapter 2 we read, I with the voice of thanksgiving will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Jonah is loving God's mercy in that moment. He is all about God's steadfast love. He's all about who God is in that moment. It's not that that Jonah hates God's mercy in general. So if Jonah loves God's goodness... Then why, is, then why is he so angry as God once again puts his goodness on display? I mean, we would think Jonah would be happy about this, right? This is yet another display of God's character, who he is, his mercy, his grace, and all those other things in Exodus 34 that we see. Why is he so angry? Jonah is so angry... Because God has shown His goodness on people that Jonah does not deem worthy to receive it. According to Jonah, these people, the Ninevites, should not receive the goodness of God. Why? Why not? Well, I think that there are many 
reasons why Jonah feels this way. I mean, he's a very complex person just like we are. So imagine in this moment as he's very angry, there are a lot of feelings, a lot of emotions, a lot of thoughts that are running through his mind. But in the midst of all of this going on, I think that there are three that rise to the surface. Three primary reasons why he is so angry. And the first one that I can see anyways is Jonah's self-righteousness. Jonah struggles with self-righteousness badly. We see it here in this prayer, and we also saw it in this prayer in chapter 2 where Jonah said, those who, repay, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But if you remember, he didn't say anything about himself. So in other words, they, whoever they refers to, have idols, but I don't. They have idols, but I don't have idols. Jonah has idols. He just can't see them currently. He just doesn't realize it. His self-righteousness is being put on display in that moment as he prays that prayer. And you remember we talked about that and how it was pointing us forward to the breakdown that he's having now in chapter 4. And he's going to continue to have at the end of chapter 4. So Jonah struggles badly with self-righteousness. Second, Jonah worships his country. It's one of the idols that he doesn't see. He worships his country. His country is one of his idols. One of the things that he worships. And we saw this back in chapter 1 when the, when the sailors were questioning Jonah about his identity. You remember that? When that questioning session was going on. How did Jonah answer? Where did he find his identity first and foremost? It wasn't in God. That's not what he said first. No, what he mentioned first was his race, his country. I'm a Hebrew. And remember that these people, the Ninevites, are a threat to his country. They are a threat to something he's been worshiping. They are a threat to what he finds his identity in most. We talked about this a little bit toward the beginning of the book, the beginning of the series. We were talking about how Jonah served as a prophet under King Jeroboam II and how the Assyrians, they haven't invaded Israel yet, Jonah's land, but they were exacting or they were requiring a tax to be paid. Basically, hey, you pay this money and we won't come destroy your country. So they're threatening one of the things that he worships, his country. They're a threat to that. So he's very angry that God has just shown mercy on these people who are a threat to something that he worships and loves and finds his identity in first and foremost. There's another idol that he worships as well that he's not aware of, and it's the third reason that I think Jonah gets so angry. Jonah also has, or excuse me, he also worships a false image of God. That's the other idol that I think that we can see. Jonah worships a false image of God. 
because Jonah really finds his identity and his worth in his country, he has turned God into a small g God who exists to meet that end. Kind of see how the, you know, the pattern's going here. You know, he has this idol that he really worships and finds his identity in. And so God is just a little God that serves to make much of that God that he really likes. So as long as God continues to make Jonah's country great and prosperous and also destroy all of its enemies, then Jonah is happy. But as soon as God does something that threatens that idol, Jonah becomes consumed with despair. And that's what we see next in his prayer to God. He says there in verse 3, Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Lord, take my life from me. It is better for me to die than to live. He has given himself over to despair in this moment. And at first, what Jonah says may seem a little confusing to us. I mean, come on, Jonah. Do you really want God to take your life? Really? I mean, do you, you really know what you're saying in this moment? I mean, do you really feel that it would be better to die than to live? I think he's very serious as he says this. You know, in this moment anyways, being overcome with these emotions, his anger, his self-righteousness, all those things going on, I think he's very serious right now in this moment that he feels that it would be better to die than to live. So it may be kind of confusing at first, but if you think about it, this is what happens when we find our identity in something else besides God Himself. This is what happens when we worship something other than God. Something that's frail and temporary. Something that can be taken away. That thing or that person gets threatened or maybe it does get taken away and we feel as if happiness can no longer be found. As if we no longer have a purpose. Or as if we no longer have meaning in our lives. That frail object, that frail person, it doesn't live up to the expectations maybe that we would like for it to live up to or meet. It crumbles before us. And in that moment we lose our happiness, we lose our purpose, we lose our meaning. And like Jonah, we may give ourselves up to despair. Because all that we've attached ourselves to has just been taken away, right? That's what's happened in this moment. God has just thrown down Jonah's idols. And Jonah, he does not know what to do or what to think. So he just gives himself over to despair. And it's at this point, though, that God confronts Jonah with a question. So Jonah has just given himself over to despair. He is consumed with sadness and feeling like he can no longer be happy, that he no longer has a purpose because what he's attached himself to, what he's been worshiping, what he really likes and what he really wants and what he really finds his identity in has been just 
crushed to dust. But God in this moment, He confronts Jonah and He says, Jonah. And I just want you to think about how God approaches Jonah in this moment. I don't think God approaches him heavy-handed. Jonah! Do you do well to be angry? I don't think it's like that. I think God probably, being the slow to anger and gracious and steadfast, loving God that we saw in Exodus 34, picture it in your minds. This is Jonah. Probably this, he's watching these people repent. <laughs> probably crying. He's filled with anger, face all red. He's like, I hate you people. <laughs> or, you know, all that stuff going on. And here comes God. Jonah, do you do well to be angry? Think about it, Jonah. Do you do well to be angry? Think about it for a moment. Is your anger justified? Is it right? Should you be angry? We should always pay extra close attention whenever God asks a question. Why? Because God doesn't need to ask questions, right? I mean, God already knows everything. He doesn't need to ask anybody a question. Because the normal reason for asking a question is that we don't know something and we want to find out, and so we ask a question. God doesn't need to find out information. He already knows everything. So why is He then asking a question? God puts this question before Jonah so that he can reveal Jonah's sin to him. I mean, that's what God's been doing all along in this entire book, hasn't He? Trying to reveal Jonah's sin. He has been exposing Jonah's sin. Jonah just hasn't got the picture yet. So God, He puts this question before Jonah to make him stop and think about what he's doing. Now, why didn't God just tell these things to Jonah at the very beginning of the book, right? I mean, that would have been a lot easier. Hey, Jonah, I'm just going to go ahead and let you know. I'm going to ask you to go to Nineveh. You're not going to like it. And I already know why. Because, you know, you have this thing called sin that's within you. And, you know, it's embedded within your heart and there's self-righteousness and stuff like in there. And so you're not going to like it. But you need to deal with that sin right now before I send you there. You're a sinner, Jonah. Why didn't God just explain it to him at the very beginning? Well, it doesn't work that way. And you and I both know that the best lessons learned in life are not lessons told to you, but learned by personal experience, right? That's how the best lessons are learned. I mean, if you are a parent, you have probably told your kids that, I don't know how many times. I was told that many times. I didn't listen, of course. Personal experience. Had to learn it in that way. But God knows that too. He knows that telling Jonah that he's a sinner and that he's going to do all this is not going to work. He's going to have to learn it by experience. As Timothy Keller says in his book, he says, No human heart, this is coming from the prodigal prophet, by the way, book I've been mentioning uh, pretty frequently, 
Keller writes, No human heart will learn its sinfulness and impotence by being told it is sinful. It will have to be shown, often in brutal experience. End quote. We will have to see and learn our sin by experience. And not only will we have to learn our sin and see it clearly through experience, but we will also have to learn through experience how needy we are of God's grace. Somebody can tell you that you are in need of God's grace, but it's a whole different story when God puts you in a spot where you are very needy and you come to actually see, hey, I'm really not all that great and I'm pretty empty in and of myself, actually. I'm in need very much so of what God can give me in His grace and His mercy and His steadfast love. So, oh, that we would understand that, right? Oh, that I would understand that. Because in understanding that truth, we are given a whole new perspective on when things in life get hard or when things get taken away from us. Because circumstances and situations, whatever they may be, do not create sinful thoughts or sinful actions. They just expose what's already there. Right? If you get put in a hard situation and you sin, the circumstance hasn't caused you to sin. It just exposed the sin that was already in your heart. God just put you there to show you that. So that gives you a whole new perspective on every hard day, on every bad experience, and everything else that you can imagine. That we tend to complain, oh God, why me? Why are you doing this to me? We ask that question, which is a good question, why is this happening? But as we ask it, we have me at the center of it, and not God and what He's trying to do. God, why are you doing this to me? In other words, give me my comfort back. Give me what I really want, like Jonah. Not you, not what you're trying to show me. Make my life better. Give me my idol back. Give me my real God back. So we should instead ask that question, God, why are you doing this? And have in mind, what is wrong with me? What sin are you trying to show me? What does this bad day have to show me about the sin that's already there? How is it already, how is it bringing the sin that's already there out? What is it exposing? What are you trying to show me about my sin and how I need to confess it and come before you and ask for forgiveness? We need to ask those questions. I mean, God is not on the bad, in, during the bad days or during the sufferings or when things taken away. It, it doesn't necessarily mean that He's always trying to show you your sin, but I bet we would be surprised on how often He is doing it for that reason. Because you and I are way more sinful than we would care to admit. And God sees it all. Even what you can't see. It doesn't mean that He's always doing that. But I think we would be surprised on how often he actually is doing it for that reason. So it may be that God, like with Jonah, is revealing to us some idol that we have started to worship 
or revealing to us that we may say that we worship God, but it's not really Him that we want or worship. We just want Him to continue to fuel and to support what we really want. You know, the God that we really desire and worship and enjoy. This other thing, this, this other purpose, I mean, other person. So I want you to ask yourself right now, as we are looking at Jonah's example, what might God be revealing to you this morning about your sin? You know, what might He be exposing? What idol may you be worshiping? Have you created a false image of God? Is there something in your life that you are just wanting God to support and fuel? Hey, yeah, I'm a worshiper of God, but as soon as God takes that away, what's the problem here? Why don't you take that away? Have we created a false image of God? Is He just a means to our end or to the real God that we worship? Let us be very careful as we watch Jonah here. Because it's very easy to call Jonah pathetic. It's very easy to call him names and say, how dare you, you're horrible. But remember that the Bible is always acting as a mirror as we read it. You don't just read the Bible, but it reads you as well. And it's always ready to expose for your good, not just because God wants to be mean to you, make bad things happen to you. Always for the purpose of making you like His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So let us be careful to examine ourselves as we see this example. Now before I close, I want to go back to Luke chapter 15. And if you would, please come with me there because there's something I want, to, I want you to see within that chapter. <clears throat> Luke 15. So we read from a parable in this chapter earlier, the, the parable of the lost coin as it's known. But something I want you to notice in this chapter is that the parable of the lost coin is right in the middle of two other parables. You have the parable of the lost coin, and then right before it you have the parable of the lost sheep, and then right after it you have the parable of the prodigal son. So this whole chapter is just a chapter of parables that Jesus is telling. Why? Why is He telling these parables? Well, we see why in verses 1 and 2. We read this. Now the tax collectors and sinners were drawing near to Him, drawing to, near to Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. And then Jesus then goes on to tell these parables. Jesus is telling these parables because the Pharisees and the scribes, like Jonah, are not happy that sinners are receiving the goodness of God. But God isn't complaining. No, He loves to show His goodness to lost sinners. And He rejoices when just one of them repents. So, Jesus' point in these parables is that the self-righteous Pharisees and scribes and self-righteous Jonah and our self-righteous selves should rejoice too 
Because we are all in need of God's saving grace. We all stand on equal ground when it comes to being in need of His grace, of His mercy, of His steadfast love. But the main thing that I want you to see is how Jesus lovingly rebukes the Pharisees and the scribes at the end of the last parable, which is the parable of the prodigal son. I'm not going to read the whole parable. I'm going to start in verse 25. I think most of you are pretty familiar with this parable. So at the beginning of the parable, we're introduced to a man who had two sons. One was older, one was younger. The younger son comes to the father and he says, Father, give me the inheritance basically that's due to me. Father says, okay. He divides the inheritance between the two sons. Younger brother, he goes and he wastes it on wild living, things like that. And then he finally realizes what he's done. He's come to himself and then he returns back to the father to ask for forgiveness, to just live as a servant. But before he can make it back, the father runs after him, shows him compassion and welcomes him back. And then we come to verse 25. So they're all celebrating, kind of like, you know, God and all of heaven celebrates when a sinner repents and comes back. So then we pick up in verse 25 with the older brother. <clears throat> thinking, be thinking about Jonah as we read these verses. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. He didn't even want to ask the father. He calls a servant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he received him back safe and sound. But he was angry <clears throat> and refused to go in. He didn't want to go in. He didn't want any part. But look what happens next. His father came out and entreated him. He doesn't want to go in. He's very angry not only with his brother. He hates him. But he's angry with the father too. He hates him too. But the father comes out to him like he came out to the other son. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command, like your, like your other son, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. See how he's distancing himself from the other brother, this son of yours? Distancing himself not only from him, but the whole entire family. But then look at how the father responds. And he said to him, Son. He calls him son. The son is distancing himself from the family, and the father's drawing him back. Son. You are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. You can look everywhere and you will find no greater love than what you see here the love of God in Christ Jesus. You will find no greater love. 
The older son symbolizes the Pharisees, the self-righteous Pharisees. And he also symbolizes Jonah. And we can go ahead and lump our self-righteous selves in there as well. You know, most of the time Jesus reserved His harshest comments to these people. Rightly so. But in this moment, He shows that He is still willing to accept them back into His family. Even though they are very self-righteous and they don't think other people deserve to have the goodness of God bestowed upon them. Jesus welcomes them back. The Father welcomes them back in Christ. How? It's through the cross. On the cross, Jesus not only dies for the prodigal son, but He also dies for the self-righteous person who thinks that he doesn't need Jesus' righteousness or that he thinks he's better than everybody else. And in this moment, we see Jesus telling a story that portrays the Father's love for sinners, self-righteous sinners. Just like we see it here in the book of Jonah, as God comes to Jonah and He says, Jonah, do you do well to be angry? He's inviting him back. He doesn't have to. He could just say, okay, you self-righteous jerk. Act like that. And carry your tail back to Israel and be mad. But He stops Jonah out of love and says, do you do well to be angry? He welcomes him back and He welcomes us and our self-righteousness and our sin through Christ as well and what He's done. You will find no greater love anywhere else. There is no greater love than what we see here of God in Christ Jesus. I mean, where else will you find someone who loves the unlovable, who forgives the unforgivable, who accepts the unacceptable, unacceptable, who is patient with the rebel, who lovingly rebukes the self-righteous, and who welcomes into his family all those who are despised and rejected? You will find no other God like this. And He extends the same love, the same acceptance to you as well. Now, one last look at Jonah, and then I'm done. So we've seen that Jonah has some major problems going on here, right? And God has begun to deal with some of them, exposing his idols and the false image of God that he's been worshiping. But Jonah is still a very self-righteous person. So how is God going to deal with that? Well, that's what we're going to see at the end of the book when God once again poses more questions to Jonah. Father, we come before You. And Lord, what do we say? What, what do, how do we respond to such love, such grace, such mercy, such steadfast love that we see here in Jonah and that what we saw in the, the parable of the prodigal son. Lord, You are indeed slow to anger. And You show the same love, the same patience, the same mercy upon us as well. Oh, we thank You for Christ who makes this possible because He has died for our self-righteousness, He's died for our sin, our wild living, whatever it may be. And You welcome us back into Your kingdom. You are indeed great, Lord, and above all else. 
to be praised. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.